Real Bad is part of the Cage Club Podcast Network. If you want to explore more podcasts about movies and nostalgia, head over to cageclub.me and check out some of our friends. Hello and welcome to another episode of Real Bad, the podcast where we talk about real bad movies and why they want to hurt us, except today we are not. We are talking about good movies who kind of want to hurt us. <laughs> so uh, I'm joined by Matthew Gatos. Hello. Hello. And it is one of our real good episodes where we sort of pick a theme, however loose, loose that yeah. theme may be, uh, and we give ourselves a break from the bad movies and uh, we watch a couple of good ones. And uh, today the theme is real long movies. That we like. Yes. <laughs> or in, in the case of me, for sure, I don't know about you, but in the case of me, we, that we love. Um, I I love the movie I picked. It's Same. no secret you've seen the title. So, okay, you yeah. do. You love, you yeah, love. I would say I love it, yes. Okay, great. Um, which is also... Oh, uh, yeah, that's the name of my podcast. That's right. I'm We're, not doing an episode about this movie, though, because that would be... I don't know. It'd be redundant at this point because we're about to do that essentially. Yeah, I don't know if you love it that much. I don't. I, I mean, we'll get into like the intricacies of that, but I don't I, love Apocalypse Now enough. Yeah, and I love Giant as a film, but as like if I just needed to talk about it for an hour, I could like not sit down without you around talking about how much I love this movie. Interesting thing. I would love to know if there is a single film that you would feel comfortable going on your own podcast about. Yeah. It's yeah. I, I'd have to think about it. It would probably like, be a, either a Star Wars or a Batman. A single film, though. Batman eighty nine means a lot to me. Okay. So I think that is one I could do. But yeah, it would be interesting. I could probably do Aliens. Yeah. Yeah. I think. Anyway, those are not yeah, the movies those, we're talking about today. <laughs> we're talking about the nineteen fifty six yes uh, movie Giant with James Dean and Elizabeth Taylor and Rock Hudson. And then later, we're going to talk about Apocalypse Now mm -hmm. with Martin Sheen. Actually, with a, a whole bunch of people. With, <laughs> yeah, so many names that at the time were not as famous as they are now, but right. holy geez. Yeah, holy so geez. Many, <laughs> so many names in that movie. So many names. Uh, but let's start with Giant. This was your selection. Yeah. This was also your idea. It was. It was my theme idea. I was like... I think be, just because I had not watched Giant in a while, and I was looking kind of for an excuse. Excuse to talk about it? Well, talk about it, and also to watch it, because it is almost three and a half hours long. Yeah. And so there's not always, like, Saturday night, you don't, you're don't you not really in the mood for a three and a half hour long movie. Nope. It, at this, <laughs> like, in this day and age, it's kind of like, if we're going to see a movie that long, it's probably a superhero movie, and it's probably in the theaters, and we probably feel like we kind of have to sit through that long of a movie. Because that's what they give us. Right. And it's, but uh, in particular, I mean, uh, tell me about Giant. So first of all, tell everybody who hasn't seen Giant, what is what is it? Uh, it it's interesting because I think Nick summed it up pretty well of like, this movie doesn't really have a plot per se of like, right. there, there are a lot of things that do happen, but it covers, uh, I guess, roughly around 40 to 50 years of time. It seems like it kind of goes from like the 1920s up to like the 1960s, uh, I guess late 50s ish. Yeah. Um, it, to present it, yeah, for the it, time it yeah, was made. It catches up to the late 50s. Um, but it it's essentially about Texas and it's about ranching and oil and family and what that what each of those things means to different people. We, right. You have... And wealth. Yes. and it's, it's, Yes. And 
class systems yeah, 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 and yeah. like there's a lot of racism in it um and a oh, shocking amount like a shocking I, I, amount. Was, I was unprepared for the boldface racism yes and it's also one of the things i uh, didn't remember as much about the film because it has been a while since i've watched it but it, it and I'm not defending that part of it, but I'm saying that with a lot of those decisions, whether it's the racism or the class systems or this, they kind of explain each character and why they feel justified in their like life view. Yeah. Like it does not tell you you should agree with them, but it is explaining why they feel that way and how they either were born into that system. This is Texas. This is the way we do it. That's man talk. This is like... <laughs> And I think it was one of the angriest texts I ever texts I ever <laughs> sent Matt when we got to that line. Yeah, it's like it's this man is stuff. Man stuff. I'm like, wow. Um, <laughs> and Elizabeth Taylor in this film kind of serves the purpose of being the most likable, but also like kind of for the time, definitely progressive yeah. uh, in her role of kind of shaking up all these other characters who are kind of stuck in their ways of either being racist or sexist or whatever and kind of being like, well, how about we just treat everyone like humans? Mm -hmm. Maybe we should try that. Um, And she doesn't have a lot of success throughout the film, but there are moments that have, because we do get to see like whatever 30, 40 years of these people's lives, you see the lasting effects of some of those moments that in another film that doesn't cover this giant span of time, you're just kind of supposed to assume, like, I guess that changed things. Yeah. Uh, for instance, we can get into more specifics as we go on later, but there's uh, a young boy uh, in one, like, I don't want, I, I think it maybe like, of the era would make more sense, but I didn't really understand a lot of how the property works. I basically, had no idea. Yeah. yeah I, basically, Rock Hudson's character is Jordan Bick Benedict Jr., uh, and he has the like the biggest ranch that's ever existed in the world, <laughs> like five hundred million acres, something like that. I think like, he said it was like half a billion. Yeah, like if you actually figured out it, like I think I looked up out of the like private land owner, like biggest ranches that have ever existed. I think there was one that existed that was like the same size in real life that is <laughs> based on. Um, I'm betting those things don't exist anymore because they've been sold off. But right. on his land... Which is a part of the, the story of this movie yes, as well. exactly. And in this film, there are, uh, like, there are people who have come from Mexico to Texas or either have lived in Texas since it was Mexico. It's kind of unclear of like yeah. how that has gone down. But they live on his property and seem like some of them work for him, some of them don't. Yeah, it's there's almost of, like a shantytown yeah, that is on his, on his property. property. And it's it's kind of interesting, and he kind of, like, doesn't interact with them that much. He kind of avoids them, gives some of them jobs. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, they kind of just live out their own lives uh, to the detriment of some of them. Like, yeah. he is like, oh, that's not our problem. My doctor isn't going to take care of them. Like, they can deal with them, their own problems. Right. And Elizabeth Taylor's attitude is much more – you think – it. it on one hand, it is progressive, but there is also a self-serving thing because yes. she keeps saying, this is a scandal. This isn't right. It, this this terrible town that exists on your property is a scandal. She says it twice. Yeah. Um, and like so she's also being protective. Yes. And that is, I think, one of the traits of a lot of the characters in this movie is they're all kind of looking out for themselves in a yes. lot of ways. And yeah. they kind of have 
very steadfast beliefs that cannot be broken. Yep. And uh, it gets into a lot of trouble. But I, I'll finish up my one point I was talking about. about oh, like, sorry. Uh, no, no, no. no. <laughs> We're, I'm sure this is going to be a very like tangential conversation here. But like most real before bad we get too far off, I just want to make sure the uh, the point about like her actions having lasting effects is that the young boy who's uh, on hell, I think on hell, I think that's how they say it. In yeah, I think um, it's... And he, you see him as a like a really little boy who like- well, needs, he's a baby. Like, yeah, as a baby and like needs like medical help and they need a doctor. This family needs a doctor to come in and care for these people. And Elizabeth Taylor makes sure that happens. Mm-hmm. And then later on, we get to see him as like a teenager going off to the army. And- you... Well, he's also, let's remember, mm-hmm. one of the biggest, I don't want to say plot points because yeah. it's its a very loose plot, but one of the biggest sequences in the movie is Rock Hudson is very adamant that his son mm-hmm. will take over running the farm. Yes, the that's what he did from his dad and his dad from, exactly. from his dad. That's what the Benedicts do. Yeah. And his son is terrified of horses. Yeah. And so on his birthday, he tries to get his son, I don't know, his son is like four or five. Yeah, like four or five, yeah. I think. Tries to get him on a horse and he just cries the whole time. Just cries and cries, cries. But then on hell, um, just jumps on the horse and starts riding. Yeah. And then they try to get him off and Rock Hudson is like, let him ride. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah, it's a very, it's a really, it's like one of those hard to watch scenes because it's clear everyone at this birthday party is uncomfortable and Rock Hudson is being a really crappy dad to his four-year-old son and making him ride this horse that he yep. clearly does not want to ride twice. Twice. <laughs> um, and eventually Elizabeth Taylor just has to grab the kid and take him inside. Um, but yeah, to get back to a little bit of the plot of it, we start off and it's uh, all these actors that we've talked about, Rock Hudson, Elizabeth Taylor, and James Dean are playing about like 20 years old, like early to mid-20s. Yeah, that's about right. Um and adults yes because of like again like this is 20 year olds in 1920 in, at this yeah. storyline uh so he owns this whole big ranch uh and he is going to buy a horse <laughs> and when he's going to buy this horse for like ten thousand dollars which i'm like whoa that's a lot of money in 1920 and he um, says well it's a lot of horse yeah that's true uh but he meets the daughter of the man who's going to buy the horse from which is played by Elizabeth Taylor and they immediately fall in love even though she's kind of betrothed to another man who is sitting there yeah that handoff was really weird too <laughs> cuz she meets like she meets and she falls in love and then they just they just go off and then she gives him to her sister. Yeah, her sister's like, well, if you don't want him, can I have him? And she's like, yeah, sure. And it turns out he's a real nice guy. Yeah. <laughs> he seems fine with the arrangement. He's like, ah, sure. Yeah. Uh, so Elizabeth Taylor moves with uh, Bick. I guess I should mix, shouldn't mix the actors and the uh, the names. It's Leslie, as uh, Elizabeth Taylor's character, moves back to Texas with Bick. Yep. And uh, a very good scene of them arriving on a train as they get into Texas and it's just nothing but desert and like a sandstorm blows up and she was from New England-ish area. The most beautiful picturesque yes. little, little ranch and, in New England. Yeah, and immediately they get to Texas and it's nothing forever no, it in looks every direction. Like, it's, uh, it looks like hell. Yeah. Like... And it's it's so good because she's like, what is this? And he's just like, it's Texas. This is welcome to Rayetta, my ranch. Isn't it beautiful? Like to him, it is the most beautiful place in the world. And right. it's 
literally just desolate. There's a big ranch house in the middle of nothingness for hundreds of miles. It's just dirt. It's just dirt and cows. And tumbleweeds. That's his life. Yeah. But on his property, he has a worker who is troublesome named Jet Rink, who is played by James Dean. And it's clear as we get into this that there's a lot of like struggles between him and Jet. He's like maybe fired him before and his sister hired him back because they needed him. But they clearly don't get along, which... According to reports, neither did did, did uh, James Dean and Rock Hudson very much. Yeah, James Dean and Rock Hudson had um, there's uh, there's some like gossipy stuff which I don't believe. Yeah, but I do believe that uh, what happened was Rock Hudson comes from an older school of acting, right? And an older school of quote unquote professionalism, and I and I understand that I get it. Um, and James Dean was very much rebellious against that and his acting style was very different Mm -hmm. Um, and how you prepare for it, how you work with everybody on set is different. Um, And a similar thing happened in the 60s and 70s with people like Dustin Hoffman and and, uh, Sir Laurence Olivier on Marathon Man where uh, it was much nicer though. (laughs) The the rumor is that uh, in Marathon Man, Dustin Hoffman was supposed to be sleep deprived. His character was supposed to be sleep deprived. So he just stayed up and didn't sleep. And when they were there, he's acting opposite Sir Laurence Olivier, and he tells him this, and Sir Laurence Olivier is like, well, have you ever thought of acting? You know, <laughs> like, it's, so it's just different ways of doing it, and yeah. I think um, they probably rubbed each other the wrong way. And Yeah, and it yeah. sounds like a lot of people had issues with James Dean in his short career of he was, I mean, the guy died doing what everyone tried to stop him from doing, which was driving fast cars too fast. He even did a freaking... PSA yeah. about not driving too fast. Apparently in Jet's outfit, because yeah. I think it was like right around... It was like during filming of this and James Dean died before this movie came out because it yeah. took a really long time to edit and put together and make and everything. So much so that there's a scene in the film that I want to talk about <laughs> where he is ADR'd by somebody who is very clearly not James Dean. Yeah, And yeah, this was the last film he ever made. And it... It's one of those things of everything you hear about him and like the way he was on set. I'm like, oh, yeah, no, I could see why he would rub some people the wrong way. And especially if you have this very like staunch traditional actor of Rock yeah. Hudson, like they're going to butt heads a little bit. Um, but where the plot diverts is that uh, Jet is uh, left in a will because uh, Bix's sister dies. And in her will, she leaves a little piece of land to Jet so that he can start his own life. Mm -hmm. And he builds a little bitty house out there and he starts uh, digging one day uh, by accident, kind of. Uh, Elizabeth Taylor's character's heel (laughs) like pokes a hole in the ground and suddenly there's a little bit of oil. Up from the ground comes a bubble. (laughs) (laughs) And a few years later, he's got a full oil rig set up and Jet Rink strikes oil and has a huge geyser and suddenly almost overnight becomes like a billionaire. Yeah. He owns Texas at this point, except for the only thing he doesn't own is the Ranch Rayetta, which Mm -hmm. he really wants to buy because clearly there's probably a lot more oil under there. But Bick refuses to sell it to him because he it's his cherished ground where he's his rancher and it's his dad's ranch and all that. Um, so it kind of goes through their life of those two battling it out, of Jet constantly wanting, wanting to buy Bick while they don't really respect each other in a lot of ways, and it comes to a head at a certain point where uh, Jet has opened up this new airplane like or uh, airport and hotel, and he has invited the Benedicts there 
because he's kind of always been in love with Leslie, and he also kind of is trying to marry their daughter, which is really creepy. It was, you know, you can play the what are they called? May December romances. Yeah, you can play those, and they work. I think you know, man, woman, woman, man, I, right. man, man. I that doesn't bother me as much as there was something incredibly creepy about his performance. Well, I think what is properly creepy in the way they carry it is that like it is very clear from the moment he meets Leslie that Jet Rink is infatuated with her and is kind of in love with yeah. her. And so... Oh, and he tells her, you're the most beautiful woman I've, that's ever probably been in Texas. Yeah, you know? and then she's like, I'll tell my husband, you approve. And he's like, well, <laughs> let's, let's not, not do that. Let's not worry about that. Um, and so Jet Rink is kind of that sort of, like that moment again sums his character up really well of like, he's not somebody who's going to fight by choice right he's not gonna go and fight for what he wants he's gonna try and get it maybe by some other means and eventually when he becomes super rich he just buys anything he wants and tries to get everything he wants just with money and it comes to a head when he gets blackout drunk at this opening night event and slow progression of getting drunker and drunker and drunk <laughs> until he's the most drunk and they cancel the event and he collapses over a table while giving the speech to no one. Yeah. And he and Bick have a fight at one point or they are going to fight. Well, because Jet um, specific uh, there, there's a lot of plot here. We don't need to go 100 percent. into. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Bick and Jet uh, go in the back room as though they're going to fight. Bick is ready to punch his lights out. Right. But then sees that he is. There's nothing there. No, he's just like, he can barely stand up. Yeah. He's slurring everything he's saying, and he ends up falling into like a thousand racks of wine bottles. Oh, no, no, no. That was Bick. Bick threw. Oh, yes. That's right. Um, at them and knocks him over. But yeah, he, he can't, he can barely hold himself up. Yeah. And so he's basically like, you're not worth it and walks away. Yeah. Um, and in the middle of that, we have Dennis Hopper's character, who he plays a young, he plays, uh, the young son of Bick Benedict mm-hmm. and Leslie Benedict. Uh, and he marries one of the uh, Mexican girls who grew up on the property. Well, I think he marries the daughter of the doctor that came. Yes, but I think it's, yes. I don't yeah. know. I, I couldn't understand if the doctor lived in that town or not. or if he Oh, just, yeah, that's a good question. I don't um, know. <laughs> but anyway, like, this is a big deal to everyone around them because. Especially Bick. Yes, Bick is racist mm-hmm. in like no uncertain terms even like leslie calls him out on this because he the way he talks about mexican people throughout the film is very degrading yeah and he is very much in the old mindset of like we won texas from them texas is ours yeah and so him and jet both have many degrading things to say about mexican people and it goes as far as uh when they're going to this big event dennis hopper's character's wife wants to go get her hair done at the salon before they go to the event. And Jet's policy at his business is that uh, Mexican people are not allowed into the salon. Mm -hmm. And Dennis Hopper uh, gets very upset with him and also wants to fight him. (laughs) There's a a lot of people getting upset with each other in this movie. Yeah. And, yeah, that's kind of the plot of Giant. Well, I'm really curious. So we talked a little bit about this. Yeah. And I have a lot of questions because, like – Watching this movie, I'm like, it's, you know, it's opulent. Like, it is, this is a George Stevens production, and mm. he did not, he was not chintzy. Like, he... No. You know, he and I think he directed it as well. I believe so. Yeah, I think he did. And this was a passion project for him. It came from a book, and it's, you know, it's a big deal. But, like, this is not a film, this comes from an era of Hollywood I didn't really, I never really have liked. Mm-hmm. I don't like the sort of Technicolor, 
uh, or Warner Color, as it was called in this film. Yeah. And this it was kind of like the post Technicolor yeah, age. It did. So they were like banding about a lot of new technological terms. They were. We did a crash course film production on it, mm. and, or film history. Might have been film history where yeah. we did the history of color. Uh, and everything, you should go check it out because it's way more, there's way more going on there than you'd initially think. Yeah. Um, so my question first is, how did you first see this? How did it first come into your life? It's a weird story. Okay. Uh, I love weird stories. So basically the summer after senior year of high school, um, I was getting ready to like head out to film school in California from Illinois and uh, my friend's family goes to Martha's Vineyard every summer and so they asked me to house it for them and nice. so I went and I just li- basically lived in their house for a few days like I don't know almost a week maybe and in their house in their basement they have a 103 inch screen with a projector <laughs> God. and okay. I've talked about this I think before a couple times in the podcast because this is where a lot of movies that had kind of shaped my taste this is where I saw them for the first time this is where I watched Evil Dead for the first time this is where, yeah, I just, it was a very nice thing to have <laughs> when you have a friend whose parents are super into film, have a giant DVD collection, and also a 103-inch screen in their basement with, like, lazy boy chairs. Yeah, that sounds nice. <laughs> yeah, no, we did a full, like, Star Wars marathon of this first, like, the six films at, when they were all out on DVD, and it was it was a good day. <laughs> Look, I had a similar experience, but there were only three films at the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thir- 13 hours worth of Star Wars is a <laughs> lot to get through, but it's it's helped when it's on a 100-inch screen. Um, so yeah, I was house-sitting for them, and because I was just about to head off to film school, I was kind of in that mode of trying to watch a lot of classics yeah. that I had missed out on, and James Dean was one of those people who I had not seen any of his films. He only has three, but I had not seen like Rebel Without a Cause and I was like, oh, I gotta see that. Mm-hmm. And so they had like the James Dean box set. So I just watched all three of those films over that like span of the time I was house-sitting for them and it just, it, I don't know, like Rebel Without a Cause is great. I do love Rebel Without a Cause and East of Eden is kind of, eh, <laughs> I don't necessarily need to watch that one ever again. I feel like East of Eden has one of the best titles. It's a great title. That is a great title. And I think it sounds just like from title alone sounds like to me a better movie than Giant. Yeah. But after watching them, I did not feel that way. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it was just kind of it, it felt necessary for me to see them. Hmm. And after watching them, it Giant hit me in a way that I never expected um, and also just in a way of, oh, you can do that. Interesting. What can you do? You can make a three and a half hour long movie because you want to be truthful to the book and you want to tell this full story and you don't want to like skip over too much. You want to live in these moments and these scenes that if you ask somebody else to adapt Giant today – I'm sure they could make a two, two and a half hour long movie of it and skip over a lot of these things that George Stevens gave some time to. Mm -hmm. Um, By the way, if anyone out there is trying to adapt this, I think a miniseries is probably the way to go. Um, Netflix. You can make it even longer than George Stevens did. Yeah. They did it with Dallas. Come on. Just do it with Giant. Um, They did. Yeah. They (laughs) they rebooted that. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I think for me, it just... Watching it felt like a spectacle, and it does feel that way. It feels, I think it, 
whereas you are not as big of a fan of that era of Hollywood, I very much am, am into the CinemaScope, the Vista Vision, the all of those weird technological things that they were boasting about of like, look at we can make it bigger, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, and it feels kind of gimmicky in the way that I think 3D has in recent years when there's like, yeah, sure, like this, everything's in 3D. <laughs> it was like everything was a vision or a scope or whatever. <laughs> but I kind of like that because a lot of times it's the filmmaker's choice. And right. they want to present this image as big as possible or as grandiose as possible. It feels to me like Christopher Nolan going around with like the 70 millimeter print of Space Odyssey, like mm-hmm. 2001 Space Odyssey and showing it because he w- feels like people need to experience that. And I feel like a lot of those films with, I think back to, I mean, this is a weird mix of films, but like some 50s era films that I really enjoy are like North by Northwest and 12 Angry Men and White Christmas and Throne of Blood, which is a very different one to slip in there. But eh. it's it's in that same era. And these films all kind of feel like you're supposed to experience them with people in a a sense of awe. It's supposed to come over you. Yeah, and that does make sense. I don't know about um, 12 Angry Men. Not as much. It's, it's funny just because the of those ones era. you listed, that's the one I want to watch. Right. I My initial problem with this when I sat down to watch it this time was fascinating because the Blu-ray that you lent me, the cover, the characters mm-hmm. are all in black and white. Yeah. And so I was like, I love black and white photography. Right. So I was like ramped up, like, oh, hell yeah, I'm going <laughs> to watch a black and white. And it starts off in color, and I was like, oh, yeah. it's in color. And I, yeah, you go to 12 Angry Men, I think one of the greatest films ever made, and it's easier for me to interact with because it's in black and white. <laughs> well, and it's, just a, it's a purposefully much smaller story yeah, Well, yeah, than a lot of those, too. Like, I think... Uh, yeah, Throne of Blood is gigantic (laughs) yeah but also beautiful black and white uh cinematography yep um but i think north by northwest and white christmas are both purposefully shot in ways that were supposed to be impressive just to look at Mm -hmm. of look at how colorful and bright and wide and big oh yeah i mean this was the era of uh John, uh, the searchers who directed the searchers, uh, John Ford, John Ford, yeah, John Wayne. No, he's in it, John <laughs> Wayne. No, he's in it. Um, but the searchers is that way, definitely. And John Ford was really good about, and I think George Stevens in, in this is very good about making the location a, a character mm-hmm. and making that a big part of the story. Because even though I don't connect with this movie, mm-hmm. I was really impressed especially for the first half of the film yeah the way we were able to separate th- we, we were basically elizabeth taylor was our our window right and when she shows up in texas like there's no misunderstanding that this is not what she was expecting oh yeah no because it's it's one they're on the train and she's looking out the window and she's like when are we getting to texas and she's and he's like honey that is texas we've been, been in, in texas te- for eight hours yeah yeah <laughs> and she's just kind of like oh because it's she has read books about texas she right. has read stories she has heard from bick about texas she knows nothing about it and she just gets there. married this man and went off to texas <laughs> yeah and that moment when they do get off the train and a dust storm just blows up. And it's so good because not only do they get off the train, he has his own car yeah. that like the train has taken them. And the train drops off their car and the train leaves them. Yep. And their car is just sitting in the middle of the desert and there's nothing 
forever. Nothing. And the wind is blowing her like dress and her scarf like up into her face, and she looks miserable. And he's just standing there proudly, like it's gazing out. It's so amazing. It's like that whole sequence. And then when they first show up in the house, Mm -hmm. it's this you know gigantic house. And there's a great scene the next morning where Elizabeth Taylor walks downstairs and uh, everybody's already had breakfast. They get up at 5 a.m. to have breakfast and she goes and opens the door and the dust and wind just blows (laughs) everything down and she has to force it closed. And it does a very good job of setting us in a place, but also a very good job of making us both have empathy for Elizabeth Taylor, but also understanding that she is not going to give up. Yeah, and it it's a little sad at times because you're also yeah. realizing that this isn't a film where she wins. This isn't no. a film where... She has little victories. Yeah, and I think those are the ones that pay off like long term. And there are many moments with Bick where we see him be like downright terrible. And then he's slightly better later on. <laughs> that's her biggest victory is that he's slightly better at the end. Yeah. And like that's when we can talk about it now or like if we want to get into the ending later on. Well, like that's one of my biggest hiccups with this movie is the end of the film itself. Yeah, I agree with that. But uh, well, the first thing, it was weird for me to be in a place where I was cheering for Bick's sister to die <laughs> because she's. She only does one malicious thing. She's just very plain spoken and thinks the ranch needs to be run a, a, a specific way. Right. And she's afraid that um, Leslie, Leslie, Elizabeth Taylor, right. is coming to take over, mm-hmm. um, which Leslie is not trying to do. She no. just wants to, it, she wants it to feel like her home. Right. Which is understandable. Understandable. Again, seeing things from her character's point of view is kind of. The only way you can relate to this movie. And yeah. that seems like if you were in that situation, you'd be like, yeah, I understand you guys do something this way and have done it for 50 years, but I I need to feel at home. Yeah. But uh, Elizabeth Taylor is the only one that can ride this horse. At least the only woman who's been able to ride the horse. Right. And uh, then Bick's sister gets all pissed off and says, well, I'll ride that horse. And she rides the horse off and she's stabbing it with spurs mm-hmm. and just being horrible to the horse. And then when I saw the horse walking back to the house without her on it, I smiled. And I felt bad about smiling, but I was like, yeah, horse, you buck her off, son of a bitch. I was so mad because, like, we'll get into this when we talk about Apocalypse Now and animal cruelty. Yeah, these these films have a surprising amount of, like, parallels. Yeah, it's bizarre. The biggest one being Dennis Hopper. but (laughs) Yeah, Dennis Hopper is in both. Yeah, um, baby Dennis Hopper and then... Middle-aged Dennis Hopper. Uh, So, but then there are these little victories she gets. The other one is bringing a doctor to Mm -hmm. see the kid, the first doctor, the the doctor that's supposed to be only for the Benedicts. Right. She gets him to go and look at the child. Then she makes sure there's another doctor who comes in that's um, the Mexican doctor. Yeah. And then, you know, so there, there are these little victories she gets. She is, and she does it without being um, conniving. Anyway, she just does yeah. it. Oh, yeah. And, and I like it, that. I really appreciate it. And she's also not like, she's not doing it to be rebellious. No. She is doing it from a good place. She believes it's the right thing to do. Right. And she is willing to buck tradition 
in order to do that. Yeah. Which is kind of the epitome of Lutz's character, which Lutz is the sister that dies. Uh, her whole thing is tradition. And Bick kind of is the, writing that line between his sister, who is heart and soul tradition, Bick, you better not leave this ranch again, kind of thing. Yeah. And Leslie, who is the complete opposite of things should change, things right. can be better. Mm-hmm. And once Lutz dies, it's kind of that. I think Bick has to become the Lutz a little bit. Yeah. Uh, he gets a little bit tougher, and he's like, I'm never leaving this ranch again. And Look that, at the one time I left. Things went to hell. Right. And then, you know, and then it goes so far as to him saying, yeah, and, the, and he damn well is going to run this ranch after I'm gone. Yeah. Despite the fact that it is very clear that he has no interest and would not yeah. be good at it. That's well, And he even I, says it. He's like, I can't. I mean, this is not for me. Yeah, you don't want me to do this. Yeah. Like, and we even get that nice little tease when the, the birthday scene, when he, before he gets sad and is riding the horse. We get little uh, Dennis Hopper. I can't remember <laughs> yeah. his character's name, but the Jordan. son. Yeah, uh, we get him playing with like a little doctor's set. Yeah, like a little toy, like play school doctor's set. Yeah, and later on, it's revealed that yeah, he wants to follow in the doctor's footsteps that he's met and known as part of like their ranch family, uh, and he wants to go to medical school and become a doctor, and he doesn't care about ranching at all. Well, and he does say those like I'm coming back. Yeah. And he does. He's like, I'm going to come back, but I'm going to be a doctor. I'm not going to run this ranch. And it's, yeah. And then we get to the final scene. <laughs> well, uh, I guess yeah. the second to final scene is what I want to talk about. Right. Yes. The the way too long, second to last scene. Way too film, long. <laughs> is bizarre. It's bizarre. It's, it's like it's from a different movie. It is. And it feels like... Basically, they wanted to have a redeeming moment for the main, quote-unquote, main character of the film. They wanted to have you feel good about Bic Benedict when you finish this film. And the way to do that is to get Leslie to say, I've, like, never loved you more than I loved you in that moment. (laughs) And it's like, well, I guess we've agreed with her throughout the whole film. Now she's also right. But that scene, uh, the second-to-last one, is... uh, after the whole beating up Jet, wanting to fight Jet, whatever, at his event. So they're headed back from that event, uh, and it's Bick, it's Leslie, it's Juana, who is Dennis Hopper's character's wife, and their child. So I think it's just them, right? Like yeah, that's Dennis it. Hopper's character is off going home a different way. I think he's maybe flying home with his sister. He's flying home, and there's a reason, but I can't remember well, what the reason is. Well, because his sister is a pilot. Like, she can fly a plane. Well, yeah, um, but like... I. I guess for some reason he was flying with her or going home a different direction. Or he had to drive a car. He was on a f- the phone in the hotel for some reason. And they, they were saying, like, yeah. it's time for... Uh, he said, well, you make better time if you, you know, if you take the flight in the morning than if you drove. Yeah. And I can't remember. I don't remember either. Yeah. The travel plans are not important. No, but they are. They get they end up in this diner. And it feels a little weird because, one, it kind of seemed like the story was over. <laughs> like, you kind of feel like this movie's wrapping up. Yes, and then you do <laughs> suddenly you get a scene of these three people and the the baby going into this diner and you're like okay but as they walk in you see dirty looks start to happen from the diner owner and the waitress the, the waitress are looking at them because they have a mexican woman with them yeah and you understand like oh right the racism we've seen throughout this film is not limited to the benedict ranch it is a uh, very widespread and he, the diner owner, comes over, kind of is like, hey, what's going on here? 
And Vic kind of gets rid of him by just saying, this is my daughter-in-law, like, she's with me. And so the diner diner owner accepts that as like, okay, well, fine, I guess. And then right after that, an entire Mexican family comes into the diner Mm -hmm. wanting to just eat at the diner. And the owner immediately wants to kick them out. And Bic goes to stand up for them. And the diner owner and Bic get into what felt like a 20-minute fight. It went on for way too long. It goes long. on for way too long. All we needed was, was, was like, Bick punching him, him punching him back. It could end there, and we get it. I, Yeah, it, it, it was very bizarre. The like, fight is not important. It's not important. I mean, maybe, I guess you could argue somebody would say, you know, we needed to see him really take a stand, I guess. Yeah, well, but, but even, like, cut it in half. Oh, yeah, if you cut that it's, in. It's way better because the whole point is that he doesn't win this fight. We're looking at two people who kind of clearly don't know how to fight which <laughs> yeah. could be funny in and of its own you know in a different movie yeah this fight scene makes sense yes at I the agree. end of this movie it does this fight scene sense. does not make sense <laughs> and also it only serves the purpose of redeeming Bick in leslie's eyes yes because she is watching him who has yep. been racist even towards his own grandchildren yep has like purposefully said i am going to treat them differently because he has two grandkids one half mexican one not and he like talks about the the half Mexican one very degradingly. So clearly he is not like fully recovered racist here. Yep. But because he has one fight with a racist diner owner, his wife is like, Oh, you've, you've never looked better to me or whatever she says. It's like the thing that we're dealing with now with like, there are daughters. It's like, that shouldn't be. Yes. What it takes. That's exactly what it is. He's like, wait a minute. Yes. People can be racist towards my family. Well, I won't now stand. Now I'm mad. <laughs> Racism is clearly bad. Like, yeah. this is, like, it, it bothers me. I mean, God, it was 1956. Yeah. So give it the benefit of the doubt in that the film itself is saying racism is bad. Yes. Like, I will give it that. That's very good. And, and yes. you know, and so, I, like, there is that. It's just the scene is so comical. And it, it's Bick has to do it in front of an audience. That is the problem. Yes. And in the, the, the movie was over. The movie was over. <laughs> the plot has like resolved itself. Like they the the jet rink narrative is ended. Yeah. And it could have easily gone to black after he falls over the giant table at the like reception hall. Yeah. Like it could have just like went to black. Boom, movie over, whatever. But instead we have to watch the Benedicts go home so they can talk about how great Bick is because he punched a racist. Well, and I you know, I, I do like the idea too that it's not that he punched him. It's that he, she was impressed because he didn't win and it didn't matter. The point was not to win the fight. The point was to stand up right. for somebody else. Yeah, because he definitely did not win that fight. He did not. <laughs> and I, I will say this. Whoever was doing the stunts in that fight took a few falls that I was like, ow. Yeah. Like the one where Bic actually falls onto a table and you're outside. The camera's outside yeah. of the restaurant. And man, that fall looked like it hurt. <laughs> like I, whoa! But the scene is is done in this weird celebratory, comical way. The music is even different than we've heard throughout it the is. entire film. It's like a very like bum 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 bum. The conquering hero. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's like I think they could have gotten there without that that scene um, because the rest of the film seemed very on brand and very like. You know, very, very much a piece of one, a piece of a larger whole. Like it, yeah. nothing seemed out of place until you get to that scene, and you're like, 
what is this? And I think that's part of the whole, like, this the fact that this movie is so long. For me personally, and I, I mean, I do want to hear what you think a bit about it too, Nick, of like, for me, I can get like over two hours worth into this film and I have not looked the, at like my phone once to check the time because it just goes. And when I realize I'm like, oh, I'm like two hours into this film, I could have already watched a whole other movie <laughs> in the time that I'm like not even done with like the first act of this one kind of because it is separated kind of oddly in that more than half of this film is spent in one time frame and then we jump ahead yeah. very rapidly after that. Um, but yeah, for me, this film, I, I think it's, I guess for me, this film, when I go back and watch a lot of older films, I sometimes have to put myself in the place of like, remember the context, remember when this came out, remember the filmmaking, like sure. what they had. Like if I go back and watch like the 1933 King Kong. Oh yeah. Those special effects now are laughable to a lot of people, but remembering this is the best they had and this was scary and impressive for the day like you can put yourself in that brain space right this is a film for me where i don't have to do that really i can just watch this and enjoy it and i think a lot of that is the filmmaking itself of these great big wide shots showing off the feeling of texas from like the opening credits of these cows being like herded into um, a watering hole or yeah. something yeah um but just like some of these shots just sit for so long and just let things play out that you I start to have those moments of like as a like a film student I was thinking like man I could never make this movie interestingly another similarity we're yes, gonna be absolutely yeah. no like <laughs> Apocalypse Now takes that like to the thousandth degree or whatever like you were you and I are both watching it going how did you do that I don't in know 1978 how a human does that. Like, like giant I can figure out a little bit more but Still, like, the way these filmmakers' brains work is yeah. very interesting to me. And I think – I I do think another reason Giant resonates with me is because I never hear anybody talk about it. Oh, does it feel like it's your own personal Well, it, it feels more like I need to be the spokesperson for this film <laughs> because I'm sure it is always – it's always on the lists of, like – hundred films to see before you die right. like it is brought up because obviously james dean's one of his few films so it's on that list and so i think people who are really into film know it i don't think most of them have even seen it this is my first time seeing yeah it. and i think so if diehard film nerds aren't watching it the the average person on the, on the street is not going to know this movie exists Maybe there's I'm sure it gets a lot of play on like TCM. Oh, absolutely. You know? And so I would you know, if people big cable watchers, they might. Yeah. Watch but it. I think if you were to pull like, say, the people in our office and said like, hey, do you know what the movie Giant is? <laughs> Probably not. We go Iron Giant. Yeah. You mean big? <laughs> um, but like, I think most people don't have like a cultural awareness of this film. And I'm not saying like I'm better because I do like it's not like. No, but it does. It, it's like, no, you, you got to see this thing. Right. And that's what I think that's why I the that feeling I had when I first watched it has increased is because I'm like, I don't have anyone to talk about this film with. Yeah. And I feel like it's not one of the like it's not my favorite film ever, but I do feel like it deserves to be talked about more than it is. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Whereas like Apocalypse Now is one that I feel like everyone has heard of. 
everyone talks about and it's always like towards the top of those lists of like films to see before you die. But you had also not I had also not seen it you, until you now. owned it, but yeah. you hadn't seen it. So yeah, I'm curious about your experience with Giant. Okay. So um this comes from a lot of interesting places. I uh don't like this era of film. And uh, I specifically don't like how music was used in this film. Mm. And so it was initially a little bit of putting me off. Um, Enjoy it? Not really. It's not really my thing. Impressed? Very impressed by this film. Like, mostly for the, as we already talked about, the ability for it to put me in a place Yeah. And and Which is another parallel between the two films. Um, But to make me feel like I am there and and to see this, like, the thing that is different about this and Apocalypse Now is Apocalypse is a very streamlined plot. Like, we have a goal. There's one goal. There is one goal. And whether or not that happens is, you know, that's part of the plot unfolding. Mm -hmm. This is just about observing a family. Yeah. And... I got this sense about midway through that I'm like, I'm not rooting for anyone except maybe a little bit Elizabeth Taylor. Right. But even she doesn't have any clearly stated goals. Exactly. It's like little things come up that you're like, oh, I agree with her on this. Yeah. Or you go, oh, no. Yeah. (laughs) And so I – it was a fascinating experience to watch more than anything. It Mm -hmm. was just like I don't normally watch movies like this. Like I'm a big – I like – Big studio movies now. Yeah. I didn't like big studio movies back then. Not that I was alive back then. Right. But like I, it, they're they're just such different animals. Um, but I I loved I loved the production design. I loved the house that um, that the Benedicts live in because yeah. it kept the interior design kept changing, but it's still that same gigantic window and the yeah. same layout, and it it was really a really great mirror of the times that they were going through. It's so, very. It's weirdly subtle. Yeah. For the the fact that they turned like a 23-year-old Elizabeth Taylor into like a 60-year-old woman at the end of the movie. Like the changes throughout this film are subtle enough that for the time, especially like the aging and like yeah. you said, the design changes like are – you don't really feel them happening. Like even though we're jumping ahead by like five to ten years at some points, the fact that at the beginning of this film – they are in a rickety old jalopy, <laughs> and by the end, they're flying planes and like this is super like Art Deco style hotel. You're like, oh yeah, no, a lot has changed. Yeah, and you're tracking it very yeah. clearly, and that's great. And there's a lot for me to be said about the performances, um, even though they're from very different schools of acting. I thought both James Dean and Rock Hudson really gave it all and well, really... it works so well into their characters they like, did the way we talk about their acting styles is their character yeah like Bic Benedict is this traditionalist of like things are this way they should never change and James Dean is like an agent of chaos he is in both real life and in this film it's just Jet Rank being like Screw you, Bic. Yeah. Like, my my life goal is to screw over Bic Benedict. What, what happens? He strikes oil. The first thing he does is drives his oil-drenched truck yeah. a- across their lawn to just go and give him shit. Yeah. Like that. And so, like, all of that, like, is really great. And it's weird, too, because, like, I don't typically I – don't, I don't dislike Elizabeth Taylor, mm. but I never really – Liked a lot of her movies, but man, that was a movie star. Mm-hmm. And we talk about this a lot with people like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Arnold Schwarzenegger is not a great actor, but he is a great right. movie star. And like when you see him on screen, there is something really magnetic about him. 
And Elizabeth Taylor is definitely a better actor than Arm Schwarzenegger. And that's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that, like, when she's on screen, I'm just completely drawn to her. And it doesn't matter if she's – and I, I joked about this, but I do think it's true. The aging worked particularly well for me with her. She just felt very natural as they made her older and older. She Just yeah. her personality and her acting choices. I think she, like, settles into that, like, the matriarch of the family yeah. role very well. And her, like, not only is she – she basing every decision on what is the right thing to do, but also like what is good for my children. Yes. And just seeing her perform that way, James Dean had a thing where he didn't want to sit in makeup and he was like, it's not going to be about the lines on my face. It's going to be about my mannerisms. That's what will show age. And it worked. Yeah. Like they did a little bit of receding hairline on him. I think they give him a little bit of a chin maybe yeah. at some point, but I think it, a lot of it is performance. It's performance. And yeah. it was really good. It was all the makeup is very subtle. Like even Rock subtle. Hudson, they like gray up his hair a little bit and add a little bit of wrinkles around his eyes. But he looks convincingly like in his 50s or 60 by the end of the film. And he looks convincingly like he's in his 20s at the beginning. Yeah. So like all of that, like it reminds me a lot of Gone with the Wind. Mm-hmm. It, it's that type of epic. Yes. It's this big family epic that isn't about will they get the thing? Will they not get the thing? Will they save the person? Will they not save the person? It's just simply about here's a story about this family that we can hopefully learn something through it. And it's not necessarily something I would seek out, but I'm really glad I got to watch it. And that, yeah, I think it felt like a luck thing to me too. Like the fact that I watched this felt like, oh, I found like I found this thing. <laughs> like, I didn't <laughs> oh, I have know many of those. I, where I've like, has anybody else seen this? And yeah. you find out, oh no, lots of people have seen this. But yeah, and that's kind of how it felt for a while. Of just like, well, okay, so this is on list. People know about this film, but because <laughs> not a lot of people talk about it in the same way they do, like Rebel Without a Cause, which I think is a more like consumable movie to the average person. Yeah. Um, Because it's not in the same conversation, I feel like it is not discussed and did feel like a little hidden gem when I first watched it. Right. And I think it still kind of lives that way with me. And I think think not enjoying it in, like, the same way I enjoyed it is completely understandable. And I think... Finding those moments, though, like, I, I am glad to hear that you did enjoy parts of it. Well, and I, I mean, I, I think this is something that we don't talk about enough. I try to bring it up occasionally, but it's just because we don't like something doesn't mean it's not good. I think this right. is an impeccably well-made film. Um, and there are elements to it that I'm like, yeah, I understand why this is on those lists. It's just not something that is for me. It's just not – it it completely comes at a lot of my uh, sort of preloaded b- – b- prejudices about films and you know and that is just the nature of me but I'm glad I got to see it because it is a big piece of film history not just because of James Dean but also because Rock Hudson's in it because Elizabeth Taylor's in it because George Stevens I've seen a couple of George Stevens films and I liked I liked George Stevens films Mm -hmm. um uh, Place in the Sun I think is one that he did which uh which also had Elizabeth Taylor in it and and I think it's fun to be given stuff like this that you wouldn't seek out you know, and it's we're doing it for a podcast, so it's great. Yeah. We can just sit down and chat about it. And I've had the opportunity to see it, and I got to sit there and really soak it in. I this is a movie like, no, I'm not going to buy it, but I really wish the transfer had been better. Yeah, there's there's some issues with the transfer that I think 
is a little surprising for maybe a film that is on a lot of those best films ever list. Because, Especially with James Dean in it. Yeah, like I think this needs like a proper sort of Criterion collection restoration. Hundred percent agree that because there is clearly a beautiful film in, in there. there. <laughs> yeah, there are some shots that aren't the fault of the transfer, and I'm not entirely sure why they're uglier than other shots. It's just something of this era. I don't know if they like did a sort of digital punch in on some shots that like the quality just degrades in some close-ups yeah. and medium shots. It was so common. Much. It was common yeah. to do that. Um, this was shot on 35 millimeter, which surprised. Well, it didn't surprise me when I was watching it. Yeah, but look, when I. It, it surprises me that they shot it on 35. I'm surprised something like this wasn't shot on 70. But well, I think I read something where they discussed doing that. They had planned possibly doing this in sort of like the VistaVision right. CinemaScope or whatever. And for what he wanted to do, George Stevens decided against it. And he wanted, yeah. he wanted that like full frame sort of uh, 16 by 9 ratio. Um, Which makes sense because a lot of what we see is it's about height. Yeah. Like, there's a lot told in this film. I mean, it's called Giant. Right. But it's also, like, it is the the what the audience is seeing, there is a lot of power structure built into foreground, middle ground, background, and, and top, middle, bottom. Yeah. Like, there's a lot going on in the well, cinematography. Yeah, and I think it is, it is a film that maybe, like, it would be a very different film, I think, if you shoot this in, like, super wide cinemascope where I think it does help when it comes to making Texas feel like this vast desert like uh, that they live in the middle of up because it would work really well to show off those like scenery shots but it doesn't let you get into like Liz Taylor's shoes as right. much you don't get to live in the moment with her being a human well they also like they call Montana big sky country but like Texas if you're out in the middle of Texas, yeah. like, that is one of the nice things about this aspect ratio in watching yeah. it is it just it feels so empty. Yeah. Like and I think that's what he was going for. So, yeah, I the thing that I was more surprised at was the amount of film grain that I was seeing. It's a yeah. very grainy film. It is, and, and I don't And yeah. but since I don't watch a lot of films from this era on Blu-ray, that may be n more normal than I'm aware of. Um, I think the only other film that I watched from this era is really The Searchers. Yeah. And that's been a while. I don't even know if I've ever seen it on Blu-ray. So it may not. Yeah. It, I also it, feel it, like that would probably get a better transfer if someone had done it. I mean, it could. I, yeah, I don't know. I would love to see like a really good quality restoration of this film because I think there are some shots that are as simple as just them standing on the front porch of their house where I'm like, that's a beautiful shot. That The shot you mentioned earlier where the horse slowly walks up to the house. That's gorgeous. Not only do we get to slowly watch, watch this horse walking up to the house, but you get to see the people who are like having just a time on the porch realize what's happening, coming out of the house, reacting, and all of this happens in just really like one long, wide take. Yeah, and it's beautifully choreographed. Yeah. Speci specifically, beautifully choreographed with a horse. Yeah. The like, horse has to limp into frame. I don't want to know what they had to do to that horse to make that happen. I think it's fine. I think that they had the trainer going, yeah. come, stop, come, stop. I hope so, because that horse looked very sad. It did, but it's the same horse, I think. I think. Yeah. I think my movie, the the animal did not fare as well in the movie no. I selected. So... No, thank you for sharing this film with me. Yeah, no, I'm glad I have somebody to talk about it with Because <laughs> it is one of those things of it's it's not an easy recommendation because it's like, hey, I have a film that you should watch. It's three and a half hours long. It's about Texas. <laughs> like that's 
You okay with that? That's not really a lot to recommend to someone. (laughs) Like, you kind of have to be into film, I think, to appreciate this. Um, I think me knowing a lot about film history also helped me appreciate it. Yeah. Just knowing where all of these actors were, where they would go on. Rock Hudson is in one of my favorite bad movies called Avalanche, which is a Roger Corman film that was done on the last, uh, not this last season, but the season before of MST3K. He's ridiculous in that and uh so yeah like i think there's a lot here all right so let's move on to my film that i picked yeah mine is not as long as yours (laughs) i mean it's still long it's very long there's a longer version of it somewhere there is i've seen so we're talking about apocalypse now francis ford coppola's apocalypse now the theatrical cut the theatrical cut um i am i i'm trying to think of a director's cut i actually like better than the original theatrical cut, and I'm not coming up with much. Yeah, I, I really, I think there's something to the imprint that yeah. a film leaves on you when you've seen it a few times, and then experience it with new stuff is just hard. Yeah, and I think this film is interesting because this is the first time I've ever watched it this week, and which is fascinating to me. Well, I also realized I didn't know anything about this movie. I knew Martin Sheen was in it, and like I knew it Vietnam. was Francis Ford Coppola. I knew it was <laughs> Vietnam, and I knew it was about somebody going nuts. Yeah. That's about as much as I knew about this movie going into it. And watching it now and trying to imagine a different version of this film is really interesting. And so I think I'll probably watch the uh, Redux at mm-hmm. some point, but it's going to have to be a few months or so down the line. This is not a movie that you watch and then immediately rewatch. Either. No, it's it's upsetting in a lot of ways. It's very upsetting in a lot of ways, and I yeah. and I tried to warn you beforehand because I I didn't know you hadn't seen it at all, right? But I I was warning you because like I didn't think Devin had seen it. She had not. Yeah, your fiance. Yeah. And I was like, uh, just so we're clear, <laughs> there is an actual animal murder in this. There movie. is an actual animal murder, and which was interesting because you said that to me, and I didn't. I kind of remembered that you said that to me, but then the whole film I'm watching it, I'm like, is he sure? Because <laughs> it hasn't happened yet. And I didn't realize it's like the the last thing in the movie. It almost. is almost literally the last thing you're and left with. And I was with. like, when I finally got there, I was like, oh, here it is. Because yeah, for most of the movie, I was like, I thought it was going to be just there in a village and a local, like, like people are just like preparing food and they like murder a cow, a cow or something. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, that's not what it is. It is both more <laughs> than that. And yeah. well, okay, well, let me get people caught. So, I, I Apocalypse say, Now. <laughs> uh, yeah. What is Apocalypse Now about? Apocalypse Now is about, uh, I think it's uh, Captain Willard. Yes. Uh, played by Martin Sheen, is uh, in Vietnam. This is in the midst of the Vietnam War. And he is an assassin. Uh, that works for the military. He's a military assassin. And he is just waiting in Saigon for his next assignment, going crazy in a hotel room. And that is pretty much the opening of the movie. He gets his assignment, finally, which is to go into the uh, deep, deep, deep down the river (laughs) uh, and find a colonel, Colonel Kurtz, who has gone rogue and started his own army and has lost his mind. Yeah. Um, and that his we join him on his journey down this river. And he narrates, uh, Captain Willard narrates as we go, as he learns more and more about Kurtz. Kurtz is one of the most decorated officers in that he's ever seen. 
And so he feels he's he has a lot of internal conflict about this because he's like, this guy, why are they? Ever? And the film does a good job of mm. well, the film does a lot of good things <laughs> really well, but the film sets out to make a point that Vietnam is insanity. Mm-hmm. That nothing, that everybody could be killed at any moment. There's just people are dying, people are confused, people are nobody knows who's in charge. Probably my favorite point of the film is when he yeah. keeps asking people, "Where's your commanding officer?" And they're like, "Aren't you the commanding officer?" Well, and then like the next guy he asks, he's like, "Do you do you know who your commanding officer is?" And he says, "Yes." And then and he, he walks, walks away. away. Yeah, and yeah. like there is a there's a general confusion about it, and people are panicked, and and it's it's hell. War is hell. Like that is that is what it's trying to do. And there's a point at which he's like, "Why in the hell are we killing Colonel Kurtz for murder?" Which is what they're saying is they're, right. they're killing him for murder. It's like every, this is. He says, I think it's like giving out speeding tickets at the Indy 500. Right. Because, yeah, we see throughout this film plenty of examples of things that as a viewer watching this film, you're like, that person's horrible. Hey, look at that person. They're also horrible. That person's doing a horrible thing. Yeah. And so, yeah, to be going after this one guy who did murder three people that we are told about, I think, Mm -hmm. at the beginning of the film. You find out later it's been a lot. It's been so many more. Yeah, a lot of people. Um, But... It does feel like that way of like, okay, yeah, but why this guy specifically? Yeah. And so you're kind of left wondering, like, did they know the actual extent of what he was doing? Like, could they have? Um, But I do like you brought up the point of like him talking about how decorated he is as they go along. And I think that's one of the most effective things for me is how you can tell he relates to this guy. He sort of puts he can easily see himself in this guy. Right. He sees him as like, oh, wow, he's like awarded West Point, master's degree, all this stuff. He's like, he's he's good. And like, I've been a little crazy lately. I've had some spurts. Maybe this guy is like me. Yeah. Well, also, this is what, like, he is the perfect example of what the military wants. Right. They want success and they yeah. want you to exceed. And that's all Kurtz has done. Well, and it's like you're asking a guy to go commit murder. Yeah. Because this other guy who is basically the same kind of character has murdered people. Yes. And this isn't the first time you've asked someone to do this. You find out right. in the film that he's the second one, at least. At least. Uh, that they have sent to try and kill Colonel Kurtz. Well, he says at one point, how many people have I killed? You know, six for sure. Yeah. You know, the, and what that means? We know there was one, like, tax collector or something. Yeah. Um, that he did murder. But anyway, he gets to the to the compound. We're going to be spoiling the end of this, by the way. Oh, yeah. Um, I just, hope you... Just so you're aware. Yeah. yeah. Um, Spoiler alerts for Giant as well at this point, yeah. I guess. <laughs> There's another thing I liked about Giant. There's not really anything to spoil. No. It's more of an experience. It's just like you let yeah. the movie wash the over The main you. plot point is that Jet Strikes Oil. So I guess if you spoil that for people... I mean, if you but... don't know that's coming. <laughs> yeah. Like, the, the when when they're trying to buy the land off, it's like, oh, he's not going to take it. He's going to strike oil. Yeah. So anyway, um, so he gets... Um, Willard gets to... The compound. Um, there's a whole lot that happens before that, but he gets there to the, is a lot. Um, he gets to the compound. He finds Kurtz. Kurtz is crazy. He might be sick with something. He yeah. might have malaria or something. He's, He's definitely out of it and incoherent. Yeah, and he has a lot of philosophical musings. Um, 
and uh, kills one of the people, beheads one of the guys he was on the boat with. Oh man, that moment! That was awful. Yeah, it was. But again, like so well made. Yeah. Um, and an interesting moment because it shows you how Martin Sheen's character reacts, how Willard reacts. It shows that he has humanity. Well, and that was also his. At that point, what he saw is kind of his last hope. Yeah. Of like succeeding. Yes. Like he had left him on the boat. And said, Chef. hey, if I'm not back by 2,200 hours or whatever, call in the airstrike and just basically blow this whole place to hell. Yeah. Kill us all. Yeah. And so then he gets imprisoned, and in his head, probably he's going to be there until this airstrike happens. Yep. So he's basically waiting his time until Chef calls in the airstrike, and then Chef's head is dropped in his lap. Literally in his Literally lap. Literally in yeah. his lap. And that's kind of a, oh, not only did I get captured, but the mission's not even going to be successful. Right. So, uh, but then finally he works himself up and uh, he kills Kurtz with a machete. And uh, as he is killing Kurtz, we juxtapose that with the local Montagnard soldiers um, slaughtering a water buffalo. For real. For real. Now, this is real. This was not faked. Um, I've read a bit about it and there are conflicting stories. There's about- a lot of like... Some people said this was happening anyways, and yeah. Francis Ford Coppola said he just captured it. Like, it, they were, it was going to happen right. anyway, so he filmed it. Whereas other people were like, no, Francis Ford Coppola ordered, like, ten animals and asked us to slaughter them. <laughs> Francis Ford Coppola also was losing his mind on this shoot. Yes. I have not seen uh, Hearts of Darkness. The, I also have The documentary film yeah. about this. It sounds super stressful. Um, but which is why I haven't watched it. <laughs> I have heard recordings. Uh, I, I, I did a little bit of like research where, in the middle of this film, Martin Sheen had a heart attack. Yep. While making this film, and had to be replaced for a bit by like his brother. Uh, like they used like used his brother and faced him away from camera <laughs> for some shots. And schlock actor Joe Estevez. Yeah. Um, and who did a lot of the narration. Yeah, which is. They sound identical. They sound identical, man. So you would they, never know. Yeah. But there's a recording of Francis Ford Coppola like talking about Marty, Martin mm-hmm. Sheen, and it's like basically he's like, We can't tell like United Artists about this, like they're gonna shut this picture down if we tell him he had a heart attack, so just tell him he's sick or whatever like that. And what if he dies? Oh god, like they're gonna make me stop making the movie. Yeah. Like his Not- number one concern is I have to finish this movie. Yes. Regardless of what it takes. Right. Then that's I'm sorry, that is incorrect. <laughs> yeah. That is the incorrect feeling to have. Yeah. The correct feeling is he's had a heart attack, we're shutting it down. Yeah. We're going to shut it down and see if he recovers, and then we'll come back, but mm-hmm. whatever. He- Yeah, in this, that recording this... he even says something about, like, he didn't look that sick. <sighs> he's like, they say he can be out, like, three weeks, so, like, we can't have him back here on, like, Monday. <laughs> and it's like, oh, God, shut up. <laughs> Francis Ford Coppola made four almost perfect films, and that has got to be some kind of- record like i mean he made the godfather not a film i like but it's a great film yeah i have a similar situation like with godfather as you do with giant i think where i can watch it i'm like i see why people like it yes and i see the the artistry i'm not gonna throw this on on like a thursday evening nope (laughs) hanging out uh he made the conversation which with gene hackman which is one of my very favorite films it's part of a weird triptych Mm. of films that are not directed by the same people and don't have anything uh, in common other than the kind of subject matter. Interesting. Um, There was an Antonioni film called Blow Up about a cameraman who may or may not have captured a dead body in a picture. 
um, which are part of a crime in a picture. Then there was the conversation where Gene Hackman plays someone who um, puts bugs places and, and listens to people. And he may or may not have picked up two people talking about them, someone trying to kill them. Mm. And then the third one is called Blow Out, which is uh, Brian De Palma okay. um, with John Travolta. And it's uh, where he is a sound recordist for movies and um, is able to piece together a murder by having separate audio track and a separate video track mm. of something and is able to put it all together. So these three films come together. And I think they're really good. Conversation is my favorite one. I think yeah. it's an incredibly dense movie. Then he made Godfather Part Two. I have the same relationship with Godfather Part Two that I do with Part One. And then he made uh, Apocalypse Now. Actually, I think you flip those. I think Apocalypse Now, then Godfather Two. I think I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't remember. I don't remember off the top of my head. But um, Apocalypse Now to me is a feat of one vision. Like talking about how this film feels like it's all part of a whole. Like yeah. there, there are no gaps in this film where I'm like, oh, well, that was clearly. B camera or B team stuff or or whatever. There's nothing thrown away. It's one of the most gorgeous films. Talking about transfers, this is also one of the most beautiful yeah. film restorations I've ever seen. Well, especially when you read and hear about what went into making this film. The fact that it looks like it looks and <laughs> is coherent is amazing. And that goes into like me as a director and an editor. There are a couple of things I want to talk about here. One of which is um, when they were getting footage back uh, there's a great documentary called The Cutting Edge, which is just about editors. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's very good. It's very good. And Walter Murch, who was the editor on here, is a very famous editor. One of. One of three. Uh, um, talked about when they were getting stuff back, they were very clear that, like, this doesn't match the script. There's – we have to figure out how to reconstruct a film from this because whatever Francis wanted, whatever his original intention – was not what we were getting in footage. And I think this was in post-production for like two years or something. Yeah. Like it was... That's why I went through a few different editors and was recut and all of this stuff. And they had to... Because the narration was also not originally part of the plan. Correct. They had to add that in. And so, yeah. And so a lot of this movie's power was created in post-production. Mm-hmm. It doesn't feel... I'm going to draw a couple... Uh, a, a couple comparisons to an extraordinarily bad film, <laughs> All right. which is Justice League. Okay. Um, and if you look at that, which also had similar problems in terms of it wasn't like the footage that was coming back was not, um, wasn't what Warner Brothers wanted. And it, it didn't seem to be like, I think there are even rumors that like it wasn't making any coherent sense. Right. And so there was a lot that they were dealing with. And then, so they switched directors to finish the project and that film I think you can listen to our episode it feels rushed it doesn't feel artfully made in any way whereas this does not feel rushed Apocalypse Now does not feel rushed it feels like every single cut every single fade every single element of it was purposeful almost down to a degree of you're like there's no way they were able to get a second take of that yeah right how did they pull that off exactly like and if they did it more than one take how did they have money or how did they <laughs> time things? Like it's so every frame of this film is just amazing in its structure. And if you put like thought into it of like how they had to do any of it of like, 
there's helicopters swooping in 15 feet overhead while an explosion happens in the background, and this guy has to say that line at that time, and then this has to explode next to him. It's like the the like nowadays, like all of that would be CGI. Yeah, and you have be a able to, wind machine, maybe. Yeah, but it's just the fact that they didn't have that <laughs> at the time. Like, I don't know if there's a visual effect in here anywhere. That's a good question. Like, like I don't know if there's any. Because even, uh, I, I think, even the blood on his hand after he punches a mirror right. is his blood. Yeah. He would just it was improving yeah, and punched they, a mirror and it cut his hand. He just like, was like, here, let me go. Yeah. And he freaked out in front of everyone. Yeah. And then he punched the mirror, cut his hand, and that was his blood. Like, I, I, there, yeah, there might not. A lot of the visual effects are done in like transitions and yeah. um, overlays and things like that. But they're all story elements. Right, like I'd be curious to know if there's even like helicopters that weren't there on the day that like filmed later. Like, yeah, that's in, a good question. It all looks very much shot on the day. Oh, you know what? I don't understand. Hmm. Here's what I don't understand. Yeah. There's a shot in this film. <laughs> I don't understand how this was done, and someone didn't die. <laughs> Maybe they did. There is a shot of a tiger rushing someone. There is. And I don't understand how they got that shot. I mean, my gut says glass between the two. Man, maybe. Because. (laughs) Like the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah. Cobra. Yeah. Like, that's what my gut says. It's also a very, very quick shot. So you don't get a lot of time to think about it too much before they're just running away. It's true. Um, Yeah. It's a great scene, too. Yeah. (laughs) It's not what you expect to happen in that moment. And Chef's breakdown when he's like, like, I didn't come here for this. Fucking tigers. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. um, But, like, it doesn't look like there was any compositing done there. It just looks like they shot that however it works so yeah like it is a very purposeful movie and i would say most of that is due to post-production yeah for me anyway but okay so when did you first see this because you were like two when it came out oh yeah so i'm guessing not when you were two no i saw it on television at some point and so i don't think the cow scene was i think that was probably edited out probably a lot cut out of this movie yeah you're watching it on tv um and I didn't think too much about it. Like, oh, it's a war movie. And that's yeah. the thing you and I talked about. Like, I don't like war movies. Right. But like, this, I think if you were just flipping the channels, like, does look like a war movie at first glance. It does. So what made you kind of stop and watch it? I came back to revisit it probably when I was in, uh, was not grad school. It would have been before I went to grad school. I was doing a similar thing that you were doing and that I was like, I want to watch, I want to catch up. I hadn't even decided I was going to go back to school. I was just like, uh, I think my wife at the time was going to weekend school stuff. Mm. She was like becoming a massage therapist. And so she was gone on the weekends a lot. I was like, I'm just going to rent a bunch of movies. And I watched a ton of movies. And that was like the first time I watched Citizen Kane. The first time I watched, uh, uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey. Okay. And a lot of these things, I was just like, I, you know, it wasn't the first time I'd seen him for sure, but it was the first time I'd purposefully really, sat down yeah. and I'm going to pay attention to this. So. Yeah. And so it was kind of a big deal. And Apocalypse Now was one that was like, I am, I have a very cynical view of the world. I try not to. I try to check that a lot because I don't think it's very helpful um, to the world. But it is, it's, it's been my worldview since I was little. And it, it stays with me. So I'm, I'm cynical and I'm a nihilist, which is also, you know, like nihilism 
can mean a lot of different things, but this movie sort of speaks to me on that level, just in a story level. Right. Of like, what is the point? Like, and I think that's Martin Sheen's attitude is like, what is, what am I, why am I doing this? Right. Which is why it's not entirely surprising when he shoots someone in like cold blood. An incredible sequence. Yeah. There's a scene where they come upon a boat and so the boat that uh, Willard is on, yes, is a patrol boat. Yeah, it's just a few guys who are kind of assigned to this boat. Yep, and he has been assigned to them, and their job is basically like take this guy where he's supposed to go, yep. but he can't really tell them why they're going there or where they're going. Right, and so they're kind of just stuck together. And at one point, they come upon like essentially like a fishing boat or like mm-hmm. a transport boat, uh, supplies, something yeah, like that like, of yep. like local Vietnamese people, yep. and the captain of the boat or pilot of the boat, whatever he is, wants to investigate and see. He's really nervous about, like, if this is somebody trying to pull one over on them and get them. So he wants to stop them and investigate the boat and check it all out. And when they stop, he's really nervous and it has one chef goes over. And he's starts, making everyone else nervous. Yes, he's making everyone yeah. kind of really on edge yeah. and he's freaking out and... Willard did not he's want just to like, stop. Well, yeah, he's like, no, we shouldn't be stopping. Yeah, we he's did. like, we have one task. We have to get up river. This is not important. Yeah. Let's keep going. And then they stop, and they're checking this all out. And Chef is frustrated. He's on edge. He's checking out this boat. And Chef he, has been frustrated for yes. a while. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and he, the the woman on the boat rushes at him in a move of like well he first he goes he's uh chef or uh the the captain of the boat yeah. keeps saying check that thing check that thing yes and he's like there's nothing here yeah. there is nothing it's like, here there's vegetables there's rice this, yeah. this it's like check that yellow thing check this box check that thing yeah and then he says check that thing check that box yeah and as he reaches for it that's when she rushes the woman him. rushes him and as that happens clean Lawrence Fishburne, played by a fourteen-year-old Lawrence Fishburne, uh, opens fire on her and everyone else on the boat. Yeah, and blows them all away. And it's like immediately, it's one of those scenes where again, there's a lot of scenes like that in this film that hit you. You're just like, oh my god, they stop, stop this, stop this. This is horrible. Mm -hmm. Um, But it gets even worse Uh, because after that, they realize that she, the woman who rushed, was rushing after a puppy. She was she had a puppy in the little box. Yeah. Uh, that she was trying to protect, and that not only that, that they essentially blew these people away for no reason at all, yep. but that also she is still alive. Very important. She has not been killed. Right, yet. and so the captain of the boat is like, bring her on board, we'll take her to some friendlies nearby, and Martin Sheen disagrees with that and wants to continue the mission and just shoots her. Yep. I think it's the only person he shoots in the entire movie. Correct. Yeah, um, that is absolutely correct. And it's very much a moment where everyone stops. The movie stops. It gets like, silent. Everything gets quiet, and you just sit with that moment for a long time. All you hear is uh, Chef crying. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just uh, it's a very poignant moment. I don't remember why we got there. But... Well, it's a, it's a very <laughs> poignant moment, and it's poignant for another, a bunch of reasons. The filmmaking, the performances, mm-hmm. um, the, the sound design, uh, but also just the overall storytelling. We, we, it tells us vital information about Captain Willard. Yeah. Like vital that we know, okay, I know who he is. So when you were watching it that time for like your very purposeful sit down watch, did you have like sort of this strong of a reaction that first time you watched it? I did. Um, and it was, 
it was something that was building. I didn't really put it together until I watched it on subsequent viewings and started to really think about what I like about films and what I like about storytelling mm-hmm. in general. This film doesn't play like a war movie to me. Right. The opening of it kind of plays like a bit of a Western all the way down to Kilgore um, and having a bugle call and yeah. everything. Like it's all very – like that's all very uh, Western genre. But then to me, this movie feels almost like a science fiction film mm. from the music – to yeah, because the music is very computer. Yeah, you know, and, and also I feel like that's a very I think good comparison because there are so many moments where they kind of are floating in the nothingness of space. Yeah, and suddenly something is attacking them, or they come upon an alien planet. Yes, of sorts where it's like, what is happening? Oh, there's a Playboy Bunny show. What what is this world we have discovered? Exactly, and in some respects, it plays like a horror movie mm-hmm. as well at times. And and I love those genres a lot, and I love the elements of those genres that are kind of woven in here. And so that was a big thing for me. Uh, I also this is this is going to come out of nowhere, but follow me. All right. This I like this type of story where a team or a person has to go on this journey and it just gets darker and darker. And, right. it, and it's all about self-examination because like he is figuring out who he is through all of this. Willard is figuring that out and comparing himself to Kurtz. And we don't even know what Kurtz is when we when we get there. We don't even know who he is or anything. We just know we've heard a couple little things. And we get Dennis Hopper's character who's yes. playing a photojournalist who's basically like, this man is a god. Yeah, exactly. Like, you can't you can't speak ill of him. You can't just talk to him, man. Yeah. Yeah. And he's great in here. Like, Yeah, no, he, he's amazing. He's, he's great in here. He was great in Giant. Yeah. Like, he's very, he was a great actor. <laughs> Hopper, good actor. Who knew? Yeah. Um, but I also, like, I want to see this story structure used in other places. So Heart of Darkness is the novella that this is loosely based on. Right. And in the back of my head, one of the things that I had kind of hoped for was Rogue One was going to kind of be this mm. type of thing. Like, I want to see this type of story in other genres in other stories like I want to see someone that has to go kill a Sith agent or has to go kill a Jedi who's gone rogue or something like that like I want to see that story told in different places imagine that as the Obi-Wan solo film wouldn't that be great where he's like they he learns about like Oh, that would be work. That would work so well (laughs) of like he thinks all the other Jedi's are dead and he learns about one but it's a rogue it's a problem yeah. So I think and I, I think that's great. And I love introspective films, but I also love that this film is like I, everything about it. The the atmosphere is just so thick in everything. You can feel the heat. You can feel. Oh, so, Martin Sheen's so sweaty. He's so sweaty. <laughs> Everybody's so sweaty. But yeah. Martin Sheen especially. Yeah. It looks like they just like sprayed him with like a spritz, like a mister between every single shot. Man, I wouldn't be surprised if it was just sweat, though. Oh, yeah, no. Like, like shot in the Philippines. Oh, it looks God. really warm. Yeah. Um, it's also plays to my, uh, we've talked about this a lot, but like my love of craft. Yeah. And how beautiful this film is. Um, but then the last part of this film is interesting to me from a filmmaker's perspective. Um, I mean, all of it is. Yeah. But we get to um, Marlon Brando playing Kurtz. Mm-hmm. Marlon Brando, bigger than life actor, 
uh, and definitely in everything he's in, he brings something to it. He much yeah. like Elizabeth Taylor, except Marlon Brando is an incredible. He's actor. a whole other realm yeah. of actor. Yeah, I mean, he's one of the few that you mark on the acting, the line of acting where you go, "There's where it changed." Yeah, and he's one of them. Yeah, and he had like multiple moments of that. Even like he yeah. had his young career of like on the waterfront, and then he had. This era where yeah, the Godfather this, and Last Tango in Paris, yeah, uh, you know, all so like definitely brings a lot of weight. But he was supposed to have gotten himself into really ripped shape, and yeah. He came onto the set overweight, he much and, like James Dean sounds like, especially in his later years, was very hard to work with, yes, and just did not really respect the people he was working with, no, because it was like <laughs> from what I read, is like he didn't. Not only did he not read like the book that this was based on, but he also didn't read the script that the film was supposed to be based on. Yep. And he also was supposed to be, yeah, like tall and lean as Kurtz. And he was not. He no. was like in one of not necessarily the worst shape of his life. But oh, no. He was that. on his way there. Um, and he also asked them to change the name of the character, which they did, and then ended up changing it back. <laughs> Because uh, he was said Kurtz would not be the name of an American colonel, and so they changed it to Leahy or something like that. Which is a scene where you can see Harrison Ford being clearly dubbed, saying Kurtz, and they oh, yeah Harrison Ford's in this movie. Yeah, Harrison Ford's in this movie too. Baby Harrison, Robert Ford. Duvall, like yeah. Lawrence Lawrence Fishburne. But it's just yeah, he clearly had no respect for Francis Ford Coppola or for the filmmaking process on this film, which is interesting because I don't know how the Godfather filming was, but it's like, these are people who have worked together before. Yeah. I, it's, it's very bizarre. But the thing that amazed me was the more I learned about it was like, okay, the biggest problem, not the biggest, but one of the biggest problems Mm -hmm. I had with the Justice League was the Henry Cavill mustache. (laughs) Right. And I talked about it in our episode. I brought up Apocalypse Now. Mm. Marlon Brando is supposed to look one way. He doesn't look that way. So what do they do? They change the set. Yeah. They they make it more mysterious. He's almost entirely in shadow. He's in shadow and you just see shafts of light as he as his bald head comes in and out of frame mm. and it's spooky. Yeah, you and, get like a some really creepy close-ups of his face just like staring at you. Yeah. And it's like it changes the tone but it the they thought of it in terms of the entire film and where we were going with it. And the way that they dressed him, the way they did everything, part of it is, you know, like, well, we gotta, we we can't have what we originally wanted. Mm. But they thought about it and it wasn't just, ah, digitally make him thinner. You know, I know they right. didn't have the ability at that time, but you can tell they didn't, they didn't just throw it away. They didn't hire like a second actor to play his wide shot version. Right. Like, like he is who he is. Yeah. And the point of him is he's a great actor. And so they, they masked a lot of what, you know, he didn't do for the character. Yeah. And I just, I love how artistically it was all done. Mm. And it was one of my biggest angers about Justice League. Yeah. It was like, okay, you have a mustache problem. <laughs> you put a beard on him. You know, you, yeah. you do something more artistic than what you did. Yeah. Because what you've done is obvious. Or like maybe don't do close-ups. Something. Like, <laughs> you shoot it differently. Yeah. Shoot if you need to do reshoots of him with a digital removed mustache, don't do it so close so that we notice it. Especially not the first shot. Don't make the first shot of your movie 
a terrible CGI removed mustache on an iPhone. Yeah, yeah. So, but that was a big thing that I I took away from that was that okay, you have to roll with the punches mm. as a filmmaker. And I didn't know the extent to which, like, I think drugs had gotten into Francis Ford Coppola's life, and right. um, especially on this set, and that he was he was very stressed out and also sick um, mm-hmm. a lot. So, like, I'm not saying that that's the, the that he uh, behaved perfectly in any way. I think he did a lot of shitty things, but I appreciate as a storyteller, as a person who likes being told stories, yeah, the amount of care that went into solving a problem. And it, it, it goes throughout this entire film and throughout the post-production process that it wasn't just like, oh, we got to slap together a thing and make it work. They really were editors trying to make something great out of this wonderful footage they were getting. Yeah. And they were like, trying to solve a problem. I'm sure they could have made a very bad version of this film. Oh, you know it, right? Like, based on what they got, like, there's – there is a terrible version of this film somewhere out there. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm sure one of the first assemblies, they were like, oh, no. Yeah. I'm sure the studio was like, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so how did that affect your filmmaking specifically? Like, I, like as a director, I'm sure, like, the rolling with the punches, trying to get the best out of everything. Yeah. And it uh, in my own filmmaking, it allowed me to, when I would be making a short, to be on set and have that moment of like, okay, this isn't working. What am I going to do? To fix this. And it can't be, you know, and I would be working with people who weren't invested in it as I was. They were trying, but they just weren't as invested. And they would right. say, well, why don't you just have him say this? And I'm like, no, 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 no. I got I to gotta think about this. And then I would go back and try with the time I had yeah, um, to try to come up with solutions. But also, like, for me, the rolling with the punches wasn't as big a deal to me as it was thinking about the care of every shot. Like, that is something that really really wove into my whole attitude about like there is not just a shot there every shot is important right and this film in particular is just like every shot is beautiful Mm -hmm. and tells a story and is part of the story it was something that my cinematography professor and i talked about a lot was like if you think about every camera move this in and watching it again this week, I was just like, God damn cameras moving way more than I thought it was. Yeah. Um, but like every camera move is very purposeful. And you think about there's the beginning of the shot. There's the middle of the shot. And there's the end of the shot. They had it all mapped out. They knew what they were doing. Might've taken them several days to get there. Right. But just the thoughtfulness mm-hmm. and the, uh, the attention to detail and the attention, the attention to the beauty of it, I think is important. I think that's something I really value. Even movies I don't like, um, I can step back and go, but man, that was pretty, you know, and, and this shot was really great or mm-hmm. whatever. But for this, everything works for me. Like the story works and the shot making works for the story and the performances work for the shots that are telling the story. <laughs> like it's all, it's all working for me. So uh, my next question was going to be, does it hold up? But I think... Yes. I mean, I think it, <laughs> I think it does. Um, I have a moral problem with the cow. Well, yes, yes, yes. I, I think I, I that have... makes sense, I think, to have that, uh, the issue behind the scenes. But I think uh, as a story and as a film itself, like... I, every it, time I watch it, I am shocked at how much it holds up to me. Yeah. I, I feel like, I don't know, I, I think this is a good time to turn it around to yeah. you, because you hadn't seen it. Uh, this is the very first time, yeah. So made in 76, like... I don't know. I mean, what was – let it wash over you. What was your experience? <laughs> uh, 
I really enjoyed it. I was kind of surprised at how much I enjoyed it because I'm also not really a war movie person for the sake of it being a war movie. Like, I think right. the ones that, like, really glorify of, like, we did it, guys. Look <laughs> at it, how we won World War Two, Isn't it great? It's like, let's, like, this film, I think, more, more than a lot of other ones, focuses on the atrocities of the war itself. Of almost the idea of war. Yeah, and I think that's yeah. what we talked about where Giant is a Texas movie. This is a war movie in a different sense. Right. Of, like, this is putting you in the war. I think there was even a Francis Ford Coppola quote where he's like something like this isn't a vietnam war movie this is vietnam yeah, or yeah. something like that and which is yeah i'm sure he said that twenty thousand times in interviews of like no listen to me yeah i got this great quote hold on i gotta do another line of coke <laughs> yeah but he it does give you that feeling like it does scare you it does set you up for like anyone can die at any time like especially the moment like the people on the boat start dying like the small crew you've come to like sort of love the moment one of them dies you're just like oh no this is going right. to go very poorly for all of them yeah um and and because it's not like a it's not very rigorously structured right it doesn't it comes a little bit out of nowhere well a lot of that happens very late in the movie yeah and at a point where i was checking how much time was left but not because i was bored or uninterested but because i was like how are they gonna wrap this up we got like five (laughs) minutes left guys like nothing what are you gonna do come on um and i think it's all like especially for me the first like two hours of the film is just perfect in a lot of ways and i think there are it is weirdly structured a bit where there's kind of like and scene kind of moments of like yeah robert duvall comes in he gets to do his thing and then we leave him yep and we don't ever see him again and we kind of get that a few times with different locations and scenes where it's like and now we're on this portion of the movie and now we're on this section of the movie and now we're on this and that through line of willard needs to get to kurtz is what's driving it from one to the next but it is a lot of like little scenes happening yes throughout the film rather than an overarching thing Right. Uh, it's whatever this boat encounters on its trip. Right. You think of something like uh, Mad Max Fury Road, where it's a very linear progression. Yeah, it's always moving. Yeah. It's always moving. There are a couple points where you stop off, but it's still like this very linear thing. But with this, there it, I feel like there are a lot of side quests sort of things that happen Yeah, um, that take you off that beaten path. But the overall point is still we got to get to Kurt's compound. Yeah, and they do a great job of setting up the mystery of Kurtz of like, yeah. you get to see a photo or two of him at the An beginning. An old photo. Of like, there's Marlon Brando. And you're like, okay, so at some point, we have to get to Marlon Brando. Because it's Marlon Brando. Yeah, he's got to be in the movie. <laughs> uh, and so you're anticipating that in the same way Willard is of like, my goal is to get to Marlon Brando. And I think and, he even says at some point, what am I going to find when yeah. I get there? Like He, he doesn't know. He doesn't know. He doesn't know what's going to be there, and when he gets there, it's even more... It's more frightening yeah, than... that's maybe my favorite shot in the film, is the shot where he is standing up on the boat, we get the shot of him, and then it turns around to see what he sees, yeah. and it's just a thousand people yep. <laughs> silently standing in the river. With a few corpses yeah. hanging off of trees. Yeah, and you just... It's the eeriest, creepiest thing, 
and and it's quiet made so i think even more by the fact that this isn't science fiction or this yeah. isn't a horror film this is a real scene of real people yeah. doing these things and this is like believable yep as much as this is comparable to like a science fiction structure mm-hmm. everything in here is believable yeah and i no there's not like, one moment there yeah. is not one moment in here where you're like, ah, the movie making. Yeah, I think the furthest it gets from that is Robert Duvall's character of like making yeah. his men surf in the middle of a war zone. Yeah. But it also is like, well, everyone else is losing their mind. So I, <laughs> sure. Yeah. I believe it. Um, Absolutely. And he, and he does such a good job of like having this strong conviction of like, no matter what anybody else is talking about, he's like, no, look at the waves. Look yeah. at them. They're great. And they're like, are you serious right now? He's like, yeah, look, look come on. There are bullets flying and there's grenades going off and, you know, choppers coming down and he is just, and I, I love the line that it's narration, but, um, where, uh, Willard says, I just knew he was going to get out of here without a scrape. Yeah. And he has that same attitude. Yeah. He is standing there on the beach. Grenades are going off behind him and all of his men are flinching and ducking and diving down for protection. He doesn't flinch once. Nope. And I think like. (laughs) Robert, kudos to Robert Duvall for like not flinching when explosions are literally going off ten feet from him. Man, that that is a, what, a hellacious performance. Yeah, and, and and great. Like you can't help it. Like I am both scared of you and like you. Yes. Like yeah, you're very charming. Like <laughs> masochist. Yeah. Um, Charlie don't surf. Like he's yeah. so like. Um, it's so big and it's so weird too because like I've seen him in a lot of other things like Robert Duvall has you know been in tons of movies yeah and he is different in every single thing but yeah. usually he is much more subdued yeah my strongest memory of him as a kid weirdly is Days of Thunder yeah yeah because uh, I love that film as a kid because I was super into NASCAR mm-hmm. but like yeah he's just very subdued and he's like trying to like rein in the crazy in yes. that film. And so, yeah, to see him, I mean, I've seen him in other things, obviously, when he's younger, but to see him in this, playing this role, I'm like, oh, okay, this is a very interesting character, and he's pulling it off so well. He, there's like, yeah, there's no winking at the camera. Yeah, there's no. Like, like, he is. He's fully in. Fully in. Uh, I, I will say that I do think the last 15, 20 minutes lost me a bit. Really? Okay. Um, it could be because I was sleepy. I was a little sleepy by the end of this film because it was just, like, long and... Also, like, it was late at night. It's long. It, it was late. I also think that this film is a – I don't know what the right word to use is, but it's a bit grueling to get through. Well, I think, I think the film can tire you out. I think some of it is purposeful. I think some of it is the way the film wants you to feel. Yeah. And then other is – I think I start to feel a little bit of the struggle the editors have <laughs> of when they're trying to cut some of those Marlon Brando scenes. And it feels like there probably was a coherent version of that last 20 minutes, like scripted. Sure. But a lot of changes had to be made. And it's just a lot of like, okay, so wait, he's in a cage now. But now he's not in a cage. Now he's in a cage. And he's locked up. He's handcuffed. Like, I just wasn't really following what anyone wanted in the last 15 20 minutes other than like okay is he toying with him if he is i'd like that maybe a little clearer and it was just it wasn't bad enough for me to go like i'm done right but it was just confusing enough or distracting sure it kind of took me out of how good i felt about the first 20 minutes or the two hours of the film and then this last like 20 minutes i was like okay is this kind of how's this gonna end right i was more starting to think about 
the film runtime rather than the film. And I I still don't know how I feel about the very end of it either. Of him walking off with uh him not blowing everything up. Yeah. Is an interesting choice because it's not what I thought was going to happen. It is interesting because he killed Kurtz. He killed Kurtz, which is his mission. Right. So I understand why he decides to leave. And I do think it's interesting that after he kills Kurtz and he walks out, they immediately like bow down to him and see him as like their new god, essentially. Right. Um, you A little have, xenophobic, but <laughs> yes. But it is like, oh, you have killed our master. You are the new master, sort right. of vibe. And I, I don't know. It, yeah, I think it ends correctly, but it feels like it ends on an anticlimactic note, even though it is what the whole film has been building to. Right. I know it's interesting. I would be yeah. interested to talk to you if you when you watch it again, because mm-hmm. you had said that you'd like to, just not right now. <laughs> yeah, it'll take a little bit of time. Yeah, but no, I think it's a great film, and like we've talked a lot about the filmmaking itself, and it's just amazing. And I don't know how they did most of it. Oh man, there's some helicopter yeah. shots that I'm like, I don't understand. There's men hanging on and falling off of helicopters that had to really do those things. Oh yeah, I forgot <laughs> about that at the bunny, yeah. the Playboy bunny thing. Martin Sheen is one of my favorite humans. Like, not just actors, but, like, anything I see him in, stories I hear about him, he just seems like a great dude. He does. And he's great in everything I see him in, from this to West Wing to Grace and Frankie. And Spawn. (laughs) Well, (laughs) (laughs) uh, I mean, he's probably great in Spawn. I haven't watched him in a while. Nobody's great in Spawn. (laughs) Yeah. But, like, Martin Sheen is just one of those people who I could watch do anything. And he's also a great, like advocate for many things and he's like there's stories of him showing up late to film sets like where were you he's like oh i got arrested for protesting yesterday so i was in jail you're like well oh all right like that dude has been arrested like 40 times yeah for different protest things which is amazing well i loved it when he showed up in selma yeah and like i think he did that because it was like no i want i yeah you know this is real yeah they did the same thing in an episode of grace and frankie where he gets arrested for protesting (laughs) uh but in that one, it's a big deal because it's the first time he's ever tried protesting and he gets arrested. Oh, um, that would be my life if I if <laughs> the I, first time you choose to rebel. The first time, no, it's true. Every time, the first time I ever choose to rebel is the time that everyone or just me gets in trouble. <laughs> like it doesn't matter. I made a joke. We went to camp. We went to um, a week long camp when I was in um, junior high, and I made a joke. I had a headache. And so I went to the the main camp counselor, and I was like, hey, and we were joking about Ghostbusters earlier. Yeah. And I said, I like some acetosalicylic acid, because that's what Rick Moranis says to Dana Barrett yeah. at one point, which is aspirin. Yeah. And I was like, I have a headache. I would like some acetosalicylic acid. And the guy looked at me dead in the eyes and said, if you ever say that to me again, I'm sending you home. Whoa. And I was like... Okay, well, <laughs> thought we had a bond there, but apparently I pushed it too far. <laughs> well, I think this taps into something else about this film and about, like you were talking about earlier, about you like bleak, nihilistic films. You are, you consider yourself a bit of a cynic. But like what you were just saying about yourself, and I think a lot of people would say about you, is like you are generally like you are sort of like upbeat in the way you have conversations like this. They hear yeah. it every week on the podcast. So like – one, like, what is it really about that, like, this film's bleak nihilism that you like so much? And is this kind of where your love of bleak nihilistic films started? 
or was it like kind of already ingrained in you before this? I don't think this is where it started. Uh, the thing that I like about this is the, or not like, the thing that I identify with in Apocalypse Now is the questioning of who's in charge and why are we doing this? Um, one of our favorite scenes, both of our favorite scenes from the Solo movie mm. was when he's on the battlefield and why are we here? Yeah. <laughs> like, I like that. And a lot of times the people who are hurt the worst by war are the people furthest away from the decision making. Yeah. And that is horrible to me. And, and it's, it's very apparent in this film. Yeah. Like, absolutely. Like, the people he gets the orders from are sitting in this nice place. They're having really good roast beef, and there's some shrimp, and, you know, and everybody's far away from the battle. And then the further you get into the battle, the more maddening and confusing and upsetting and hopeless. Especially when he gets to that spot where there isn't a CO. Oh, the bridge. Yeah, the 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 bridge. They keep rebuilding the bridge, (laughs) and then it gets exploded, and they build it again just so they can say the road is open. Yes. And those guys have lost their minds because that's their life is basically firing into the woods at nobody. Uh, yep. And rebuilding a bridge every day. Yep. And so that I, I do like a film where I can look at it and go, yeah, I, I feel that I get that. doesn't mean I'm hopeless. I, I, I don't, I, I am not a person who's devoid of hope. Um, and being a nihilist just simply means there's nothing else out there. There's, there's no great plan you know, for everything. So all that, so for me, all that really matters is just how we treat each other. Because if we're all that's here, then we should be nice to each other and make sure we don't hurt. Like that's, that's how it manifests for me. And this film doesn't really play into that. It plays more into the idea of, of the overarching thing of war and of politics and stuff like that of just like, what, what are we doing like, it, why are we doing this? It's a really weird thing. And I um, I am, you know, a big anti-war thing, but I'm also a realist and know that it's going to happen. Like, I, I understand that, you know, also coming from an extraordinary place of privilege, um, but I also, I don't like to see people suffer. And so, and that's another reason that, like, it's it's weird to me that I like this so much because there is a lot of suffering in this movie, but I feel like the suffering is warranted because it is trying to say, look at how bad this is. Absol- I think absolutely, yeah. I think it definitely – it's never glorifying any of these things. Even when the men are having fun, it's because it's bizarre that they can have fun in the middle of this yeah. scene. Yeah. Like and- what's – like what's – when they have this huge weird stage set up for a show and behind them 50 feet are explosions yeah. and all this stuff happening, it's like, oh, this is bizarre and I'm sure exactly how a lot of this stuff actually happened. And when they pull up to that thing and everybody's looking at it like, what the fuck <laughs> is going on? Yeah. There's lights and, and it's a stadium. What yeah. the hell? And then, you know, it happens and you're like, okay, I get it. I see exactly what was going on here, and then they're all crazy. Like, yeah. and and you know, I, I say I know that that word is very loaded, right? But we're looking at a group of people who have been driven mad. And uh, one of my ex-wife's best friends was a Vietnam vet that uh, she worked with for a few years, mm. uh, and then uh, he died of a heart, a heart attack, I think. And he would talk about anything, anything. Like he had no boundaries. Yeah, but he wouldn't talk about Vietnam. I had an uncle who was the same way. Wow. Who I, yeah, 
I I know nothing about his history in the Vietnam War, but also nobody around the family knew anything about it because he came home and he suffered a bit from like shell shock a little mm-hmm. bit. Um, but it was like the one thing he did not talk about. Yeah. And that's, I think that that's important. I think, you know, so yeah. So I guess this film really hit me in a lot of those ways that it's like, it is bleak in a lot of respects, but I appreciate the bleakness that is trying to show people, look how bleak this is. And think about it more than anything, just think about it. And I think that's what good art does is it just makes you think about it. Right. It doesn't necessarily try to convince you like clearly this is like an anti-Vietnam War movie, but it's not beating you over the head with that. It's just letting you watch it and go, okay, yeah, I know what I think about this. This is awful. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, is there anything in it that doesn't work for you or doesn't hold up? I was thinking about this as I was watching it. And I know, I feel like this really bizarrely for me holds up in ways that like, I like a lot of movies from the seventies. Like I really do. Vanishing point is one of my favorite films. That movie does not hold up. Well, it looks like a movie that was made in the seventies. Right. And, but there is something about this film that I don't feel that way about. Mm. I feel like if you were to release this movie now, I think it still would be just as visceral. Um, I think the only things that don't hold up are just things that were like the 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 sound of the dialogue. We have better mics now. I think know. the Doors music is a people have a different reaction to the Doors now than they did then because of this movie. Exactly. Yeah. Because the Doors, uh, like when you hear this is the end in a movie now, it's an homage <laughs> to, to this, this movie, <laughs> which that is the one thing that I think if you released it now. It's that weird thing of like the Doors music now is the past. Like we see that as right. very telling of you want to tell me a movie happens in the 60s, like late 60s, put some Doors music in it. I mean, it's kind of like the the main theme to 2001 A Space Odyssey. Yeah. Like you can't put that. You, it's you, like Ride of the Valkyries in this. Exactly. Like every film that also puts Ride of the Valkyries in their film is doing it as an homage to this film. Right. So many things clicked for me after I watched this film of like, oh, <laughs> now I get that thing. But I mean, how did it hold up for you? Like, so- I think as far as an, like in, I think you're right in that it's ageless in a lot of ways. And I think it is because it's so impressive. And I think a lot of the ways that for me, I'm not as into like 60s and 70s cinema as you are. And I think some of that is I haven't seen enough. But other things are that there is some more bleakness to it. I think they got out of the Hollywood period, the studio system, and they were like, no, we're going to be real. Well, there was that. Definitely there was that, but there is also Vietnam. Yes. And that- The tone of the country that shifted. Yeah. And I think those are a lot of films that, one, I haven't seen, and the ones that I have don't resonate with me extremely well if they're not- as well made as this because I right. think some of them are trying to be bleak for bleak's sake and some of them are trying to beat you over the head with a message and some are yeah some you can't get past the the way the audio is recorded or the way the film looks super muddy or man just, this film doesn't look muddy no this film looks great and I think 
it's been cared for with its transfers and everything. It so, has, yeah. Um, <laughs> That's a very good point. But I think, yeah, it's. I think it's interesting that we both ended up just picking films from an era that the other person doesn't really watch a lot of films from. Right. But that. But both had Dennis Hopper. Yeah, they both had Dennis <laughs> Hopper uh, playing very different roles. They're both. Uh, took a lot to actually get done. Yeah, we didn't talk about that as much with Giant. Yeah, um, but that was but it a did hard take three film. years of <laughs> like three and a half years to get that film done between yeah. shooting it and editing it. It also took a long time to edit uh, and find the story in that. And I think it is interesting that they both have like dubbed over actors by other people and it was funny because i was watching going back to giant real yeah. quick we got to wrap this up i know but yeah, yeah, yeah um going back to giant i was i knew there was going to be a scene because matt had told me i did warn you that there was going to be a scene where uh james dean is dubbed over by someone else and i was like i wonder if i'm gonna notice <laughs> and then it happened and i was like oh there it is <laughs> well because not only is it dubbed over it is maybe his one of his most important character moments yep. in the entire Film. It is. It is his last big scene. It's a speech. It is him giving the speech he wanted to give to his banquet hall full of people, but they have all left. He is a drunken mess giving the speech to no one, he thinks. There's yeah. somebody watching him, but he's just giving it to no one. And it is so clearly not James Dean's voice because we've heard James Dean play drunk in this film already. Yep. And this is not James Dean nope. playing drunk. <laughs> this is another man playing James Dean playing, playing drunk. drunk. Yeah. It's- and. It's it's a shame, and I know they had no other option because James Dean had died. Do? Yeah, uh, but it does take you out of the film. I will say, he was so drunk, yeah, that it is enough that it was like. I mean, I understand, I get it. It wasn't yeah. so bad that I was like, "What the fuck?" I was yeah. just like, "Oh, yeah, that's not him. That's definitely not him." But he was so drunk, yeah. But that- it's like that, like. Like, it's the most drunk voice you can imagine. Oh, my God, yeah. Well, we're going to wrap this up. Yeah. Um, And, uh, Matt, you have a podcast. I do. It's called I Love It, uh, where I talk to my friends and people I know about things they love and why they love them. And, uh, yeah, go check it out. Excellent. It's a fun time. And you can find us on at RealBadPod on Twitter and Instagram. And if you would like to kick in a dollar or two and help us out, you can go to patreon.com slash RealBadPod and check out any of the tiers that you would like to contribute to. Or, you know, this is always going to be free, so you can just do that as well. A real big thanks to Black Duck Studios, I Love It Podcast, Candace, Sarah Caroline, and Anna Moss for supporting us on Patreon. Thank you so much. Real Bad is part of the Cage Club Podcast Network. You can go to cageclub.me and check out podcasts like High School Slumber Party, where host Brian Rodriguez takes you on a journey back to your teenage years through the power of classic high school films. Join us next week for another painful movie, but until then, this has been Real Bad. Real Bad.